G'day and welcome back to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper. How are you doing? There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, isn't there? There's a bit of weird stuff and uh, I feel like if I was to start having a bit of a whinge in areas that I'd really love to have a whinge, um, we would run out of time and room for me to let you listen to the interview that I've got queued up for you to listen to. So I'm not going to talk about what's going on in the world right now because this interview is fucking cool. I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. I'm speaking with the Consent Wizard, as they are known on Instagram. And as we opened the conversation, I asked, how would you like to be introduced? And they were like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if people get the real essence of who I am when they look at the website or if I can encapsulate it for you. So we kind of let it slide. So I have kind of prepared a proper introduction by way of just grabbing a snippet from the website. But what I will say about this conversation is I knew what I wanted going in, but I didn't realise where the conversation would go and just how fucking much I was going to enjoy where the conversation went. And it's not like it strayed a long way from where I wanted it to go. In fact, it seemed to find a home between myself and Mia, which I think you will understand when you listen to the conversation. And if you've ever had a conversation with a person in which you get to expand on thoughts that you haven't really had a chance to really explore or conclusions and opinions that you didn't really know you had until you find yourself talking to someone who has had similar experiences or drawn similar conclusions and opinions in the kind of exact same way. Suffice it to say, I found a sense of authenticity in this conversation that I don't often get to feel, a sense of groundedness in who I am and how I think, and being comfortable enough to unwrap that process, that thought process. So I just really, really love this conversation. (laughs) So I'm not going to further ado the shit out of it. I am going to get stuck straight into it. I'm just going to do that thing quickly where I remind you to like and subscribe and share, review and rate the podcast please, as well as reminding you that I have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the eloquent in the room. Don't forget also that there are links in the show notes, not only to things that are being brought up in the podcast conversation, but also links to my Instagram and also my affiliate link to Nikki Darling, where you can get 5% off a nice little sex toy that you might want to get yourself or someone else. I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but I have two reviews up now. Um, They're both on Instagram and YouTube, and I really put my heart and soul into those reviews, and I really am enjoying the toys. 
if nothing else, they have motivated me to prioritise my me time in a more concrete fashion than I had just prior. I was getting lazy, i got to say, because when I say lazy, I've been so absorbed in all my creative pursuits that I was leaving self-care on the back burner and not really caring about it, losing my mojo in the process. And while I don't go around recommending that everybody use vibrators willy-nilly, I do particularly enjoy the connection that I have with my body and how I love my body with my own hands. But having these toys in my life have made me experiment more. And that's brought fun into the process. Like it was always a a sensual, enjoyable process, but now I'm just having fun, just doing interesting things with these toys and finding new and interesting ways to pleasure myself um, when I'm feeling motivated and when I'm feeling lazy. They work in both instances. (laughs) Funny that. So, my loves... Here's my introduction to my conversation with Mia. Mia Shakta, a.k.a. the Consent Wizard, is a consent educator, ethicist and strategist, a writer, speaker, podcaster, creative and certified intimacy coordinator for TV and film. Their BA in philosophy and academic background in gender studies, ethics and neuroscience informs their work. The missing link in all of these conversations that I've been having is the word that I only learned when I was in my mid-30s and went to a and had therapy after my first marriage broke up. And that's boundaries. I did not know what boundaries meant. It wasn't a word that was commonly in the vernacular in my day-to-day life. It may have obviously in psychological and psychiatry and all that. That's a word that's been around forever, but we're talking the mid-90s. And understanding it's it's a protective mechanism or a, an understanding of, of what belongs to me and what belongs to the other person in regards to it, the emotional reaction or, or whatever that people are having. Being with someone who was dominant and being an impressionable young girl, I just took everything on. I had no boundaries. A traumatic childhood, just like everything's my fault, so everything's mine to fix. And with sex, I was always very motivated to enjoy myself, but even then I felt like it was part of the doing the right thing or being the right sex partner for the other person by being into it. So I I felt the pressure to be into it and I wanted to be into it, but it was still something I had to learn. It was a skill I had to learn. Once I was into it, hell yeah, I was into it. But but when you but when you're young, I feel like we're bombarding young people with a lot of information at the moment, talking about consent and all this sort of stuff for kids, which is great. How did you in your life or in your practice first come across the whole concept of boundaries because I feel that that forms a very, very big part of what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't remember when I first became aware of the concept, but I know that it became a focal point when I started training to be an intimacy coordinator, which was 
early January of 2019. (laughs) And what happened for me that I think, you know, gave me a very different perspective on, on these things than what I'm seeing in other sort of, you know, consent educators, like everyone kind of has their unique take or their unique lens, obviously. And mine happened by, I mean, I don't really believe in coincidence, you know, certain things aligned in my life. Yep. And I, I had had a lifelong struggle with my health. I had just chronic gut and autoimmune issues that were undiagnosed. And I kept thinking it was this, and then I thought it was this. And, you know, I had all these symptoms that were seemingly contradictory. And I finally found a doctor that year So I started training to be an intimacy coordinator in January of 2019. And then it was about a month later that I found this doctor who finally figured out what was going on with me. And he had me run all these tests. Um, I mean, he, when he met me, he was like, I think you have this, 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 and this. And I was like, okay, I mean, great. Because no one else has been able to figure this out. I had a, a, you know, a, huge medical history of, of having tests come back negative and being told that I was fine, which I now understand taught me to ignore my body, taught me that my boundaries were uh, not to be trusted, that any indicator that I was coming up against a boundary was something to second guess. Um, any information from my body was not something to be taken seriously. And, you know, when I felt that something was wrong and then I was told over and over again by authority figures that I was wrong, that really pervaded everything that I was doing. So that includes my sex life. It includes my dating life. It includes, you know, all my relationships and work and all these things. So I got, it turned out I had five different things. Um, and that was why I had all these contradictory symptoms and why people were struggling to diagnose me. So in getting those diagnoses, you know, I was told like what my treatment plan was going to be. And there was a certain amount that was like adjusting my diet, um, certain prescriptions that I was going to take certain herbs. And those were like the physical components. And then a lot of it was really about getting in touch with my body, learning to listen and to repair that damage because my body had basically learned that in order for me to listen to it, it was going to have to scream at me, Mm. you know, absolutely howl at me. Um, and so in training to be an intimacy coordinator at the same time and learning all this stuff about consent, learning all this stuff about about boundaries, learning about trauma. I cannot look, see those things as separate. Mm. Um, they're completely intertwined for me. Absolutely. And so much of the healing in my body um, has come from uh, finding my no and expressing myself and advocating for myself. And then also the slowing down that I think is really required in, in consent. Um, which allowed me to, you know, slow down enough to actually listen, Um, you know, doing things like just breathing, meditating, eating my food in a mindful way so that I'm not just like cramming it in my mouth, Mm. Um, you know, noticing how I feel when I'm eating it. And I really struggle with these things. I mean, these are things that I'm listing as though like, now I do all these things. Like I really, really struggle yeah. to slow down. So was it di- all, like all the uh, ailments that you've discovered, were they mostly digestive? 
I know in my life I've had problems and other people have problems and usually someone somewhere along the line says, and how's your emotional health, (laughs) rather than just looking at the physical symptom and tying the two together. Right, right. And of course, there's like people who suggest that to you in the sense of like, it's all in your head. And then Mm. there's other people who suggest it to you in a way that's like, yeah, it's a deeply spiritual thing. Right, Mm. exactly. I, I'm happy to list what they are. I just, a lot of people find this stuff really boring, but it was, I had, uh, two parasites in my gut. Wow. I had, um, pretty severe candida, persistent candida that I'm still dealing with. And mm. I had, um, SIBO, which is a small intestine bacterial overgrowth, um, that my, there's two kinds of it. And my doctor told me that he, in his 30 years of practicing and being one of like the leading SIBO experts in Los Angeles, um, he had never seen a case that bad. Mm. Um, and, and then I also had a genetic mutation that had kind of predisposed me to all these things. Okay. Um, yeah. And then, and the reason why I had developed all these things, because my cousins and my sister almost for sure also have this gene it runs on the paternal side um yeah like none of them they all have varying degrees of similar things to what I'm dealing with but I have it the worst because I have the most um epigenetic factors from infancy and early childhood like I Mm -hmm. was a c-section and I didn't breastfeed and then I had chronic ear infections as a toddler and was on antibiotics at three years old, like four or five times in a year. Mm. So given all those things combined, um, I, you know, ended up with uh, a pretty fragile and underdeveloped gut, um, Mm. which is also like why I'm as tiny as I am and um, predisposes me to all kinds of like potential future issues down the line. Mm. Hopefully not because it's been, caught and I deal with it yeah so that's that's the story I'm really glad you brought it up actually because (laughs) I think I've learned something new uh the more I delve into like social media and look what other people are doing and and the work that they're doing and also seeing uh some stuff that comes up in slides and I know that I have trouble with my boundaries because I feel like sometimes people will put up a bunch of slides that have uh, reductive explanations for things mm-hmm. and particularly to do with orgasm and, and body parts and stuff. And I'm, and it, that really irritates me because I feel like we know about our biology or once you find out about your biology, that's not the whole story. And I want people to focus in myself. I want people to focus more on who they are in that situation mm-hmm. and what they want out of it. And do they know what they want out of it? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, that, then that teaches people their own boundaries and sort of sex is kind of like a gut reaction or, or whatever, our emotional or our genetic or our childhood or all of these things affect how we respond to things that other people respond to differently. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it kind of overwhelming sometimes. So my boundaries are how do I find a place in the conversation, but how do I put a a spin on it that circumvents some of the stuff just to, just to sort of uh, attract people into going to you, going to Betty, going to Sarah, mm. you know, um, rather than 
things that are just uh, catering to this lowest common denominator of very, very short attention spans and slogans and, right. yeah. Um, and I, I've lately been finding it sort of building up in my chest, sort of this overwhelm, mm. and I think oh, maybe I've got to step back and, and not worry about it. And then I, as I was getting ready this morning, late, um, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, I wonder if Mia has this sort of same feeling of knowing where you want to go in the in the conversations that you want to have how do we as human beings know what it is our job or not our job to worry about when it does affect who we are as people doing it does that make sense I'm just raving on at the moment I think I can speak to I mean like are we talking about sort of boundaries around social media and like how much I'm willing to put in or take out of it how, uh, how, because you've, you've got a practice and you've got, you've got things sure. that you're, you're building at the moment. Um, and I'm sure you're emotionally invested in what you're doing, um, as well as intellectually, uh, and educate, you know, uh, academically engaged in what yeah. you're doing. Um, but yeah, how to deal with, um, wanting it. And not and feeling like um, people aren't getting it. <laughs> I have a fear of being misunderstood, but currently I find it's manifesting, and I think everything out there is being misunderstood sometimes. Well, I'll tell you how I combat that, but it may not be helpful. Um, I just don't believe in objective reality. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm misunderstood, I don't know. I just don't really worry about it. I'll get you to expand. I, I have a fe- <laughs> uh, No, well, I have a feeling I know what you mean by objective reality, but, mm-hmm. but you, you basically mean like because I think something that might be going on out there, that doesn't necessarily make it true. Well, that my experience is my reality and someone else's experience is their reality. And so if they experience me in a way that I, you know, don't think is true or don't think is right or is not what I mean or something like that, that is their reality. And, you know, with Instagram, it's like they can leave. They don't need to understand me. thing that I come up against that does bother me about um, trying to share this information the way that I do on social media is that there's often a demand for more when the content is already free Mm. Um, or there's a demand a word that gets used a lot is a demand for more nuance Mm. and as you just described Instagram is designed around like bite-sized pieces of media Mm. so when people demand more nuance I'm like you're just on the wrong platform like Mm. and I have places where there's a lot more nuance on my Patreon on my podcast you know I've got hours and hours and hours of nuance I have articles that I've written that take essentially an idea that I've packed into an Instagram post and expanded into 1200 words. Mm. You can find those if you look through my link tree or Google me, you know? Mm. So when people go on onto a, a medium that is meant for, uh, 
you know, extremely condensed, distilled, digestible bits Mm. and want more labor for free and more nuance in that information, you know, I don't know. What can I do about that? Like, I kind of just throw my hands up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I get what you're saying. It's, uh, it's, have you always known their subjective reality? Like this is back to the boundary sort of um, Mm -hmm. discovering boundaries and personal boundaries. Like, did you learn that or was it something like in high school that you're always able to go, well, I'm not what you say I am. Talk to the hand. Or, mm. <laughs> yeah. I studied philosophy in college. My bachelor's degree is in philosophy. Mm. And so I remember, and then I also, I started studying neuroscience and almost switched my major. Um, and then what I found, I didn't realize this at the time, I realized it through studying neuroscience, but what arose was that there's actually uh, like a longstanding tension between neuroscience and, or like brain science or cognitive sciences and philosophy, which is that philosophers largely want to believe in free will and neuroscientists want to prove that it doesn't exist. And that Mm. we are, um, you know, it's like the, the determinism and free will argument is like perfectly encapsulated in those two fields yeah. Um, and the ways that they clash. So I was studying both. And I remember in a moral philosophy class that I took, I, w- I read this piece and my God, I wish I could remember what it was, but it kind of just said like, who cares? Because our experience is mm. that we have free will. And so even if we don't, we live our lives as though we do. So, and then I also read this paper that really stuck with me called what it's like to be a bat by Thomas Nagel. Um, And I, I reread it from time to time. And it's really about that argument between neuroscience and, and philosophy or neuroscientists and philosophers. And it says like, even if you could, design a computer program that could allow you Rose Cooper to like download all of my memories and walk through the world as though you're me, Mm. you still would not know what it's like to be me because you would not have lived my life in at the pace that I lived it Mm. in my body, um, you know, with my chemistry, uh, et cetera, et cetera, with my genetics and so Mm. on. Mm. So And, you know, even if you were to clone me, that person would be a baby now and they would be impacted by the time that they live in. So this this article, I mean, this paper really, really impacted me because it it was kind of like you can do all the science and you Mm. can develop code and blah, blah, blah. And you're still never going to know what it's like to be me. Mm. And then what does that mean for us ethically in terms of empathy Mm. and curiosity and trying to understand other people? So it was in college that I started to think, I I mean, I am a fatalist. I actually don't believe in, in free will. But what I believe is that the illusion of choice is is incredibly important in our lives. So by fatalist, do you mean like you feel like you're on a particular path? Yeah. Yeah. In regards to yeah, not necessarily destiny, but just you have a life arc. 
Um, sort of. I mean, I also don't really believe in linear time. So mm. if it all, if my entire life has happened already, then there are only so many options for me. Mm. And then my, the imperative that I feel is to, um, be as in touch with that so that I'm flowing with it as opposed to like fighting against it. Um, you know, to the best of my ability. And that's where I think authenticity intersects with consent. Wow. Um, I don't know if you can read my body <laughs> language right now, but I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just really in love with it. I'm trying to uh, piece together who it was. I hope it wasn't Jordan Peterson, but it might have been. But it was a lecture that I saw a few years ago about there is no such thing as free will. And I'm pretty sure in the scheme of things that may have occurred around about the same time that I was doing a course on trauma-affected brain and development and stuff. And since then I've also, or like in talk, talking about consent, um, I spoke to Cheryl Bradshaw who did her own uh, TED Talk on the mm-hmm. freeze response and, and, and um, consent. And... When I come at these conversations, I I bring what I know intellectually and what I've learned in recent years along with a lot of good and bad experiences that I've learned along the way and family of you know, my family of origin, all of the all of this stuff. And and I wonder, had I known more about how the human brain works emotionally as well as uh, primarily, prehistorically, the, you know, all of these sort of uh, responses that we have that we don't have necessarily control, they're protective mechanisms that have served us well mm-hmm. through time. I know that I have always had anxiety to a certain degree and at certain times of my life, thought it was instinct and thought that mm. I was seeing open doors or closed doors and the my body was telling me to follow something or to run away from it either way um, and this is with my life path not just not just day-to-day experiences I'm right on the fence with the free will and the and the life path because as you say you said you don't believe in a coincidence is all I know is that it feels like in a week, things will fall to into place that were years in the making or something and you've forgotten, you'd almost forgotten that that's what you were thinking about or that's where you were headed all along and then someone comes along and then goes, uh, just says the one thing that just, it's like the uh, the connection of the, the two wires that <laughs> makes your brain sort of light up and go, hey, this is what, this is you, this is what you're about, you personally. Right. Yeah. And and I'm in an interesting stage in my life where, uh, and I'm listening to Jane Fonda's book, Prime Time, at the moment, and she's talking about the third act of life mm-hmm. and all this. So I'm like, oh, I feel like I want mm-hmm. to I want to immerse and learn more. And then there's another part of me that my boundaries are going, but, but you're tired, but you're emotionally overwrought, but but you care too much. You need to just do things mm-hmm. that bring you joy. Yeah, but there's a few things that I've got that could be valuable to impart. So it's a real tug of war that I've got going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In your many strings that you have to your bow, what do you feel is things that mm. you've incorporated and what are things that you feel like you're integrating into who you are 
and what makes you particularly feel that this is where you're meant to be? That question makes me think of something that I've thought about for a long time and I'm not sure exactly where I would like place the beginning of this thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this idea or the experience rather of simultaneously uncovering who I am, like some sort of, you know, essence of who I am and building and creating who I am. So Mm -hmm. those are, I think of those as, you know, the uncovering is like the fatalist piece and Mm -hmm. the building creating experience is the, um, the free will piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I almost want to like back up for a second because I think that people get really angry when you say that um, you don't believe in free will because it gets into the whole like, you know, justice question and like, how do we, um, you know, how, how do we enforce laws if it's not anyone's fault? Yeah, so yeah. Whatever. As a concept, um, it sounds like it's too broad. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Or it means like, you know, it would just be a free for all or like we would stop holding people accountable. And that's, that's not what I mean, but I think what we're talking, when I'm talking about like where we're, where we're at right now in terms of like the creation of the self or understanding yourself, um, I really don't believe that there are, that there ever were that many options for how my life could play out. You know, I think that maybe there were like a few possible alternate universes, Mm. um, but a very limited number, all of it pulls at some thread that has always existed. Um, Mm even things that I think that I've learned that are, that I think are new, I will have a light bulb moment at some point and go, that's the same thing that I was thinking about in high school. I just used to call it this other thing. Yeah. I understand what you you mean by that. Track that with like, yeah, like gendered language. Like I didn't have the language for gender queer non-binary when I was in high school, but I was identified. I was like thinking to myself and sometimes telling my friends, like, I think I'm a gay boy. Mm. And I didn't know what that meant. Mm. Or I, I thought that that was all that it meant, you know, mm. that I could like sort of joke about being a gay boy. Mm. And now that I understand the terms non-binary and genderqueer and trans and stuff, I'm like, oh, well, that was what I was already thinking or feeling or experiencing. And I just didn't realize how maybe deep or big it was. And I didn't realize that other people were having the same experience as me. Mm. Um, I think there, and I also, I'm like, I'm an avid journaler. I have journals from as early as I think fifth grade. Mm. Um, and then religious, pretty religious journaling from, from like 19 on. And then I did the artist way a little over two years ago now. And yeah. I have daily pages yep. from then until yeah. now I still do it. So one of the things that I've done periodically is reread old journals and I will have, I will find like the seeds of thoughts from 10 years ago mm. that I thought were new thoughts that I had three months ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And on the one hand, you know, it does two things to me on the one hand, I'm like, Oh my God, uh, nothing is new under the sun. Mm. And I thought I was growing, but I'm exactly the same. Mm. And sometimes that's affirming and sometimes it's a little disappointing. And yeah. then on the other hand, it can feel, 
um, incredibly validating that I, I'm seeing that I actually do have like a really common thread to who I am. Um, and that I really have always been who I am. Mm. And then the way that I can apply that to myself now is that whenever I have any doubt about like, uh, who I am or where I'm going, I can sort of remind myself like, look in, in 10 years, you'll look back at your journals now and you'll have that same feeling of confirmation that you're on mm. the right path. Mm. I have, uh, I don't have journals. I wish I did because I ended up being a journalist. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, but I do have like poems and, and scribbles and doodles and, and bits and pieces from when I was 17. To me, 17 was such a pivotal year. Having lived my life with other people in relationships and having children and always doing the, the roles and, um, and, and fulfilling ambitions that I felt were not only society wanted me to do, but I wanted to fulfill, you know, working out the chicken and egg scenario of that, like motherhood and all that sort of stuff. But as now that I am and I've been uh, single for like eight years and I found that almost immediately after the second breakup, I'm peeling away all the things that aren't me and, you know, it's like the artist or the sculptor says, just take everything away from the rock that is not you and that's right. that's what happens. Um, so I feel like I'm getting there in an interesting time and looking back on things and wondering uh, about this authenticity but also looking at my relationships and my entanglements with this hindsight of how much of our emotional involvement or, or falling in love or what love is and all of these sort of things that how much of that is free will society sort of gives us the impression that none of falling in love is free will at all and in hindsight I've been weighing these things up infatuation lust crushes and then along the way having either enduring love or crises or or situations with people that showed me what I felt love really is in regards to being a verb rather than a feeling that's the direction I'm I'm headed to I feel in the podcast is I want to talk more about love sex but where the love and the mental health sort of affects you know we talk about sex as this desire that brings us together as human beings but we've got to peel away all the cultural stuff that we're fed um, in order to find our journey as to what love means and what love is and this boundaries thing and projections and all of this sort of concepts of how much belongs to me and how much you gave to me seems to be a lot of the struggle that human beings have and a lot of the memes that you see are you brought this to me and you brought that and you made me feel this and all. <laughs> so how do you sort of reconcile those sort of uh, concepts in your life with the incisive academic and natural affinity that you have with these boundaries and projected reality and and all this sort of stuff. How does that sit with your emotional life or experiences? Yeah. A lot of things came to me as you were saying that. And I want to circle back to the 16, 17 age because I, I think there's something I want to share that I think will really resonate with this conversation. Um, But to answer that question, you know, one, one thing that's coming up for me is like the way that our 
the way that we think about love being this thing that sort of happens to you, you know, you fall, you trip and you fall. Um, and then you go, whoops, I'm in love. That is a monogamous narrative. You know, only monogamous people go, oops, I'm in love. Mm. Um, polyamorous people are generally aware earlier that that is happening. Mm. And so there is a greater element of choice in the matter. I'll say perceived choice in the Mm. matter. Mm. Um, And they're having conversations with the other people in their lives that they're involved with, you know, about whether or not this is something that they want to pursue. And so I I actually, I post question on my stories a couple months ago that said, do we need to be practicing consent around falling in love? Like, do we need to check in and say, like, is it all right with you if I fall in love with you? And I was really into that idea because Mm -hmm. I felt like that helps us also, you know, get on the same page about like what a relationship means to us or like what those feelings mean. Yeah. And own those feelings and not go like, oh, you know, it was a, it was a whoopsie. Mm. So. um, (gasps) I love this conversation. Go on. (laughs) The answers that I got were, oh, you can't control that you know, love isn't, love is mysterious. It's, you know, it's, it's never your fault when you fall in love. Um, uh, or like if only you could control that. (laughs) And so Mm. when it comes to the question of like peeling away the layers of the systems that we live in and the severing the puppeteer strings, um, I, my approach is a little bit different from where I think you're going, which is like, you know, the, the peeling away, um, to find like the nugget, like the true nugget underneath. Mm. I don't think that that's possible. Mm. And so my approach, and this is true with a lot of things. Like I think about this around porn and I think about this around like the gender binary, Mm. um, you know, all these things that shape who we are and what our desires are and what we want out of life and all these things. Um, I don't think that we can get to like an underlying true self because that would be regressive in a way it would mean that we have to go back and and get and I don't think that we can get to a point where we don't even remember what these lessons were that we learned or absorbed from the media and the world that we live in um so instead of trying to undo them I try to ask myself like how do I want to um live with them Mm. Um, and as I say that out loud, I'm thinking I'm suddenly tying together the way that I've come to terms with like my chronic illness mm. is that it's not about getting to a point before the damage or to a point after the damage, but mm. rather um, living with it in a way that, um, you know, doesn't exhaust me and doesn't harm other people and doesn't further harm me. This narrative, this this thing that goes on inside my head of the meant to be, and again, like you say, it's that's that heterosexual or that mono, monogamous narrative is that we're in the back of our minds still feeling like this destined people that we're mm-hmm. with is the the yin to our yang or the the twin flame or whatever it is that completes us as a human being, and right. I feel I feel that I'm finally getting the thing or the feel that 
the thing that I feel I was meant to learn in that is being enough and and that falling in love with me is has been the greatest journey of my life and all of this stuff um, and treating myself in a way that I would want be, to be treated and feel that if people come into my sphere feeling less grateful <laughs> that they care about me and feel like they should feel more grateful to get to know me in the same way that I feel grateful yes. to get to know them, to unpeel the onion and, and, and do the work that it takes to actually get to know the person you think you're in love with. Well, the beauty of not really believing in, I should say I'm, I mostly don't believe in free will. I think there are like brief instances perhaps of glimpses of it but mostly not and the beauty of that approach is that everywhere that I am in any given moment is exactly where I'm meant to be so I might be meant to have a three-month relationship with this person that I just meant met mm. I might be meant to know this person forever um, but whatever it is that happens is exactly what was meant to happen yeah and be in it now. Right. Not, no, don't write the script. And that's, I think, I think it's partly um, the way that our mind works. That is, that is part of that lizard brain or whatever that that does think, re- in spite of your intellectual grasp of the situation, there's still a mechanism in the brain that sort of wants to find safety or security in that relationship. Mm-hmm. or maybe it's an abandonment issue thing, maybe it's both, maybe it's... Who knows? Yeah, 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 that's... Um, well, and that's, that, that sort of goes back to the, like, peeling away the layers things, is that I'm like, you know, you were sort of saying that, like, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and I said maybe it's both, and I'm thinking, like, it doesn't really matter because it just is now, you know? Yeah. So, like, if if I if there's a person who like wants a monogamous relationship and they're like, that's what I want. And they might go, yeah, I like learned that from that. You know, they might even recognize like where they learned that from. Mm. Um, and they might go, but, and that's what I want. Mm. Um, and by the way, I think it's important to say, I actually don't think, well, no, I'll, yeah, I'll leave, I'll leave it there. I think whether monogamy is a construct or not, um, is irrelevant to me because there Mm. are some people who are now, whether it's innate or learned wired that way. Mm. So, you know, that just is what it is. Yeah. I feel that, um, that too, because of this uh, rationalization that we do when things go wrong and we rationalize it because there's often a, particularly my generation, I don't know about your generation, but there feels like there's a cheer squad around you at any given moment wanting whoever you're seeing to be the one because they want you to be happy. Sure. So you're very you're very influenced by that cheer squad as well as the relationship that you're in. Yeah. And we find ourselves going through, like I've had two marriages, lots of micro-relationships, lots of one-night sure. stands, and you find yourself doing the math retrospectively and, and hindsight mm-hmm. and sort of saying when you feel like with someone that feels kind of right, you feel like the other people were just lessons and you almost trivialise certain parts mm-hmm. of your life that were good, bits, bits that you, you're keeping with you 
that it wasn't just this is a stepping stone to this person. This is uh, the all of these things were valid, and right. I think part of human nature is to portion blame and either take it on or, or give it to someone else. Or we want to be right. We want to arrive at where we are, having done the things that were necessary to get to where we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I got a great, my, um, my biggest lesson from the Tao of Pooh mm-hmm. by Benjamin Hoff. And one of the, one of the things I'm paraphrasing, but there's uh, there seems to be a ruthlessness to the way we do that math that that we want to jettison the things that we've that we feel don't belong to us anymore, and we're very sort of um, uh, we look down upon the things that we have in our lives or made parts of who are who we are, rather than incorporating it all. And seeing that on our way to finding ourselves, we, we can be too combative, I think is the word that is in this phrase, this combative, like in order to uh, assimilate or, or justify where we are now and, and feel like we're in the wrong place before to arrive at this place we are now. And we like we carry that with us. We carry these wrongs around with us. We don't let them go. And this is that boundaries topic sort of coming back full circle is like Mm. um, how us as human beings getting over things, just getting over it, letting it go, moving on um, and not seeing our mistakes come up every time we meet someone new or our fears coming up every time we meet someone new and understanding how much of it is protective and good and how much of it is protective and fear that is kind of not not really serving us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, everything that you were just saying was, was just getting me really thinking about, um, like, the whole concept of regret. Mm. Um, and, like, if you don't believe in linear time and if you believe that everything is happening just as it's supposed to, and if you don't... Uh, if, if you're willing to learn from everything that you do, um, then regret almost doesn't exist. Um, and that actually brings me back to this thing that I wanted to say about the 1617 year. So I went to college at Sarah Lawrence. I did my freshman year at Sarah Lawrence college. Um, I left after my freshman year, but I made really like impactful lasting connections there, particularly with this one friend of mine, Rachel. Um, and we're still friends. So through her, um, when I was living in Brooklyn, uh, I met a friend of hers and he, and I was involved in theater. I was trying to be a playwright and a director. So this guy became my friend and he said, Mia, I'm friendly with this, um, this theater company. They're called Radio Hole. Um, you absolutely have to see this new show of theirs. It's in Jersey city. So I went all the way to Jersey city by myself. I had never been before. And I was like, I guess I'll go to Jersey city if that's the only place that I can see this show. I went, it was super bizarre. There were like tampons in people's butts getting like pulled out with teeth and, um, like actual 
blood. And I mean, it was, it was really bizarre. It was hard to track a story. I mean, I was like, what is this? And why did he think I should see it? So I didn't really think about it after that. And then a few weeks later, a friend of my roommate, um, like came home and she was like, the weirdest thing just happened. I was on the subway. I recognized this guy's jacket from this company that I used to work for. And so we started talking, we both got off at the same stop. And then we both continued walking the same way. And then we both got to our door and he was like, Oh, I live on the fourth floor. And so, um, he is having a housewarming party and he, he invited us. Um, and I had my wisdom teeth out like the day before. So I was on oxycodone, but I was like, what's the worst that could happen? I walk back downstairs. Right. So let's just go. I'll try it. I won't drink anything or I will. And you know, (laughs) yeah. so, so I, I went upstairs and I was like looking around their house and I was recognizing all this stuff. And it turned out that it was the, the set and the costumes and the props from this play. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, I went all the way to Jersey city when these people actually lived in my own building mm-hmm. I became their cat sitter and I was going to parties with them and we started socializing through them. I got involved in this other theater company called, I ended up working on, on one of their shows and met two of my future collaborator, like artistic collaborators, um, through that. And then I met someone, um, John Collins, who runs the elevator repair service. He's the artistic director of a theater company in New York. And I became his intern. Um, I did not know what devised theater was at the time, but Mm. I found myself amidst all these devised theater artists and ended up doing a workshop. Um, And for anyone who doesn't know, devised theater is a form of, it's almost like performance collage in a Mm. way where you take a bunch of different source material and sort of put it together and, and make something that becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, there's very often like a mechanism that like controls the whole thing or something like that. So I learned how to do this Mm. and, uh, and I thought this is incredible. I'm going to apply this to everything. I'm going to apply it to my work in ceramics. I've started doing like performance art pieces in ceramic, um, using these principles and so on and so forth. All right. So I moved to LA. I was like, I don't, I want to write for TV. Um, I left the theater from, from a series of like really negative experiences. Um, and then, uh, didn't want to do ceramics anymore because it was very isolating. So I moved home to LA and ended up, um, well, so I'll just, this is like a wee bit of a tangent, but I, I started writing an, a romantic comedy with a friend about an intimacy coordinator, not knowing what intimacy coordination was. Mm-hmm. And then through writing that movie became an intimacy coordinator, basically mm-hmm. became the main character of this movie in more ways than one. So I got diverted from, from that goal. I was working in a restaurant and I uh, met this woman who was a musician. And I asked her if she would teach me to play the guitar. I was like, I want to take lessons. She was like, I've never done this before. And I was like, I feel like you could do it. And it took us a year and a half to figure out that she has a master's in fine art, an MFA in devised theater from the Mm -hmm. only school in the world that we know of that offers this. So we realized that we had the same theater background and we started applying devised theater principles to, um, to making music and everything started to crack open. So all my life, one of the scariest things in the world to me was singing. Mm. And when we started working on this, I was like, all right, I want to figure out how to challenge myself to sing. I have a hunch that I can like sing a little bit. Mm. Um, And I had this kind of light bulb moment where I, 
I had been writing a series of letters to myself at 16. Okay, here's where it's, I'm bringing it back. Um, between 2017 and 2019, I wrote letters to myself at 16 because I felt that that was a really formative year for mm-hmm. me. Um, so the idea that I had was to make a concept album based on those letters. Mm. We started using device theater principles. We were like using music as inspiration that I was listening to at the time. I happened to have in high school, I was sort of known for making mix CDs and I (laughs) had, you know, 15 some odd mix CDs I didn't know where they were. And so there was a, I was like, I want to find those mix CDs. I'm going to ask my parents where they are the next time I go over to their house. The next time I went over to their house, I didn't even have to ask. They were out. They were just out for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. So I, I took them with me and I had a really long drive and I, um, I was driving up to Sequoia and I listened to all these, um, all these mix CDs. So that, what that means to me is that 16-year-old Mia started this album 16 years ago. Yeah, I do get yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And so all these yeah. magical moments of intersections of like mm-hmm. me realizing that these guys live in my building, mm-hmm. um, me realizing, you know, just sort of saying yes to this workshop and learning how to do device theater. I am making this album, this album started 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I started that project of writing letters to myself, thinking I would never do anything with it. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, maybe something will come of it. It'll help me just get stuff on paper. Mm-hmm. And now here I am like working on this artistic project. So mm-hmm. yeah, that to me, that is like such such a perfect example of how none of this is linear. It's always been happening. Mm. And there was something in the way that I was, the way that I'm listening, I think that allows me to tie them all together. Mm. Um, And when I've reread my journals, there have been themes that have come across to me where I've been like, wow, I've really always been obsessed with authenticity and honesty and transparency and all these things and free will. And, um, you know, the list goes on. And I actually took all these letters and I put them through a program that it, Oh, here was another magical moment. Mm. I said to my guitar teacher, I would love to build these songs off of the, like the most prominent themes in these letters, I wonder if there's a, a program that exists where you can find out what words you use the most. Of course that program exists, mm-hmm. but I reached out to my sister cause she's a coder. And I said, Does, do you know of a program like this? And she said, I've, I built that program. I, I it was my intro assignment in college. So you can use mine. Um, so there just have been all these like little moments mm-hmm. where it's like, she didn't know she would ever use that program again. And yeah. now she's a part of this project. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you know, because you follow me on, on Instagram that I really do deeply believe in magic. Mm. And this is what I'm talking about. Like mm. if, if I let myself believe that this is, if I thought that this was all coincidence, that would be very boring. Mm. But if I let myself believe that this is magic and that everything I did that led me to this point was meant to be that's such a more like exciting way to live yeah yeah 
I really, yeah, I, I do understand very, very much. I actually did a uh, a podcast episode on how I met um, a friend from New York City on the internet randomly in 2002 and how I manifested getting to New York City to meet her. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so I won't go into the story because it's, it's on the podcast, but... Um, but the the odds, the odds of the things happening that yes. happened to make it happen were th- ridiculous, were just ridiculous. Right. I, and I love saying in the moment when things happen, what are the odds? Because it does remind you that whether you want to believe it or not believe it, it's okay to lean in to believing mm. it because it makes sense in a way that helps you go further along the path that does feel right and this this right word is a very prescriptive word (laughs) yeah what a better word is uh feels apposite or feels you know it feels some it feels comfortable You, you you know your cushion's right everything's right you know philosophically and psychologically you're in your pocket you're in your zone you're in your lane you're in all of those things yeah, I just I just love that, and I love yeah, I chime in with obviously with the theatre background. I did mm-hmm. um, I found the same. I've been to device theatre things, and I love that I hate some of them or I hate mm-hmm. bits of them mm-hmm. because it makes me really look at whatever it is that squirm made me squirm or or whatever. I just love anything original. You get to live a life of a few decades, and you see things that think they're original and you go so I did improv for like about five or six years and definitely applied it to my life in every situation the saying yes and the 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 taking of offers and and the the idea that I can sit in this moment with you now at times going do I know what my question is (laughs) and just letting and just letting my voice come out of my mouth and let the question find itself and I'm so very grateful that you are giving me the space to do that because I have loved this conversation so much I really really uh, appreciate it and definitely will take something from it personally if you want to return at some stage that would be that would be amazing um thank you again okay well this was really a pleasure so thank you so much yeah um and I'll be I'll talk to you soon all right all the love and a hug Thank you so much. You too. Bye. Thank you. I don't know if you can tell, but that interview had to be cut off rather suddenly because Mia suddenly realized that they had a client lined up that they had to prepare for. And they literally just said, I've got to go. I've got to go. So (laughs) I cut the tangent out and cut the, oh my God, I've got to go and just sort of popped that goodbye in and you may have picked up on the fact that it sounds a little bit rushed because it was. Uh, We had such a lovely conversation and I'm just still quite dumbstruck not only by how cool the conversation was but how much it's resonating with how I'm feeling in my life lately. Feeling in the zone and also simultaneously feeling not lost but expectant, feeling expectant about what's coming next for me as a creative and what's coming next for me as a human being 
and I am turning 60 in one month, so I am going to take that month off. I'm not sure when the next podcast is coming out. Keep an eye on my Instagram because that's where I'm doing most of my talking and creating and posting little essays with reels and things. I'm on TikTok as well and I'm posting reels as well, but they don't allow you the space to extrapolate on the idea that you create the reel or TikTok around. And what I've been doing lately with my reels is doing them with a sense of purpose and accompanying them with a an essay in the caption, in the description, because everything's got to have a point with me. There's one or two of those things that I've made that were just for fun, just to make people laugh. But for the most part, I approach them quite seriously and have something quite serious to say. So yeah, I'm going to miss you. Are you going to miss me while I'm off? Hang out with me on Instagram. Like and comment and drop me a DM on Instagram if you want to give me feedback on the podcast. I would really, really love to hear from you. And if you just want to give me feedback on any of the content that you are consuming that I'm putting out there, love hearing from you. It's awesome. It's motivating. And yeah, it's for you. I'm trying to find my lane, stay in it and drive safely. God, the world's fucked up at the moment, isn't it? Oh my God. (sighs) Big sigh, big hugs. Talk to you soon. Not really soon, but soon-ish. Because, you know, I'm going to be all about me for the next few weeks. Yay! Oh my God, I think I am setting boundaries. How cool is that?